Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a pretty fun episode for you guys today. Absolutely. I, inter- I interviewed Michelle Gadding, who is one of the Iron Dames. Right. And who are the Iron Dames? The Iron Dames are the first all-female Le Mans team. Which is very cool. It's very cool. They went and drove a Ferrari. It's Michelle Gadding, who, is, who we interviewed, and Manuela Gosner and Rahel Frey. So it's these three girls went out and kicked ass at Le Mans. They didn't win, but they they finished, which is right. more yeah. than most people can say. And they did really well. And they actually are doing quite well on the European, uh, the ELMS. European, European Le Mans. Right, series. And they're doing really well there. So anyway, I was watching the Le Mans race, and I saw this, and I, I didn't know anything about them before this. And I okay. saw it on, on TV, and I, I tell my daughter, I'm like, that is an all-girl because you know, I don't say woman to my daughter. I say girl. And you can relate with that a little bit more. So that's an all-girl race team. And she's girl race car drivers. Her eyes just lit up. Her eyes got all big. And, you know, after the interview, I actually sent uh, Michelle a picture of my my daughter with her little cat car racing and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I showed her a picture of a Michelle with her race car. Oh, and, it, cool. and And she was super shy about it. And I asked her, I'm like, well, what questions do you want me to ask her? And yeah. she's like, oh, I want to know about her car, and I want to know what color her hair is. <laughs> <laughs> Which we asked some different questions. Yeah, we, find out. we went in a little more in-depth than that. But So we're going to talk to Michelle from the Iron Dames, which how cool of a name. It is, is a very Iron, cool name. The Iron Dames. That's about yeah, as It sounds like... Uh, it sounds like something from Knights of the Round Table where these women are going to come out and just slay you. I was thinking it was going to be some Game of Thrones reference, right? Yeah, Iron yeah, Dames. exactly. The the Iron Dames. Yes. Um, so before we get into that, we do have one of the sponsors to talk about. Yes. As you guys know, we launched a new sponsor for the month of July here, Petrol Box. And so Petrol Box, as you may know, is a monthly subscription service made just for car guys by car guys. Each month, they put together some of the coolest products and gadgets from around the industry and deliver it right to your doorstep. They select items such as tools, detailing supplies, shirts, another apparel, stickers, and Basically, get the best of the best and put them in a box and put them to your door. And it's different every, every month. month. Yeah, it's yes, different it every is. month. Yep. And, and what's cool is we're giving one away. Yes, we are. And we've gotten a lot of new reviews. We've got a lot of people that have added themselves to the pool of people that we're going to choose yes. from. So what do you need to do? You need to go to either iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you listen to our podcast, and leave us a review. But if it, if it's not iTunes, you got to send it to me so I can see it. Right. Because I don't we have... Don't, we, there are a lot of different platforms. There's a lot of there. different platforms. So you'll get entered into, I guess, maybe next week we'll do a drawing. Yep, at the end of the month here. So what's really cool about these guys, besides having this cool subscription box, they actually give away a set of Rotiform wheels to one lucky subscriber each and every month, which is nuts. So we've partnered with them to offer a discount on your first month subscription. There are actually two levels to choose from. They have the Petrol Box Basic, which starts as low as $19.95 per month. That's less than $20. Bucks. While the Petrol Box Premium gets you more gear for $39.95 a month. So to find out about these guys, go over to PetrolBox.com. And if you do subscribe, be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to receive $6 off your first month. All right. So I got a one topic that I want to touch on. I'm actually going to send you a message right now so you can take a look at okay. it. Um, this is... Well, I just sent you an Instagram account that is completely unrelated to. to hold on, let me. Let me so find that's it. not what I'm supposed to be looking no, at. No, no, hold okay. on. Okay, interesting. On a second. Um, so I, 
I saw something on Instagram that kind of perked my interest a little bit. Okay. Um, it was a uh, it was a slideshow post, so there was a bunch of pictures or whatever. And it, get ready for it. Okay. I want you to look at it and tell me what you see. Okay. Hold on. It's loading. I see a line of, what are those, Vanagons? There are a lot of Vanagons. Volkswagen Vanagons yeah, yeah. in so, a field. Yeah. Don't, right? don't read it. Yeah. So um, it's over 400 Vanagons rotting away in a field and on this guy's uh, complex. So it's they're synchros. Where is this? It's in Pennsylvania. There's synchros. There's Westphalias. Um, so this is Jared McGinnis's Instagram. Um, you can find him at, at, what do you got right there? What is it? I think it's Jared McGinnis. Okay. So I asked him if the guy was, or somebody was asking him if the guy was selling any. And he says, quote, from what I've read, they'll either get crushed by the city or he'll die before they leave his hands. <laughs> Why? That's the question, right? So um, further on down the line, Mike Burrows had something to say. He said, hundreds of vehicles with a cult following wasting away. So many that could go to a good home, loving hands, whatever. Why won't he allow it? I'm right. torn. I'm all for doing whatever you want to your cars, and they're rightfully his, but that's so sad. It is, especially if you know the ultimatum is coming. Right. So my, my thought is that I'm trying to get inside this guy's head a little bit. Like, why would you do this? And I think a lot of hoarders and old dudes see this stuff as a representation of their past. Yeah. Right. I mean, it seems like that's a lot of guys have, and that's their stuff is all that they have. Um, and it's, it's tough to understand from the outside, but what do you do? How do you, how do you take it away from this guy knowing that this is all he has? Is, do, you, do you take it all away and say, sorry, buddy? You don't deserve to keep 400 Vanagons on your way. Well, I, you can see both sides of it, kind of. I know. It's, I know. I also respect personal space, my property. I do what I want. But that is. But if that was your neighbor. If I was a Vanagon guy, I would be furious. True. Because that is a lot of. I mean, when you scroll through the photos or whatever, and we'll we'll put it in the show notes yeah. so you guys can take a look at the there's photos. There's like the transporter version. There's like, yeah. And they're all. There's more Vanagons than a guy could ever. The guy could sleep in a different Vanagon every night for over a year. <laughs> <laughs> Which is. And you could cook dinner in a different Vanagon every right, night for a year. There you go. I didn't even. It's it's tough to understand the quantity of cars when you look at that many Vanagons. You're like, wow, that's a lot of Vanagons. And you think about all the Vanagons that were sold, but they all got <laughs> they all rusted away into nothing. Yeah, and here they right. are continuing to do that, just that. But here is what me what made me think about this. Okay. All right, this is kind of my point. This I use this as a This as, is your segue. This or is your my catalyst. Yep, this is my vehicle to get to my point. Hey, but I'm Yeah. So um you see a lot of collections that are discovered, like, oh, uncovered, man dies, look in his barn. Yeah, barn and find. Not even barn find, but it's just like 50 cars, yeah. 50 or 60 cars, which some of them aren't even nice, but there's a good thing here. It's a good thing there. It's it's all the different cars. Like, if I never sold anything right, and I just kept everything I bought, <laughs> like Yugos, Volkswagens, Mercedes. Sure. You know, yeah, I see what you mean. You know, different Porsches, whatever, everything that I had bought, but I never sold any of it. I just kept it all. But I didn't really have them at have the money right, to, to, maintain to maintain it. it. So we end up with a airplane hanger full of dusty cars with flat tires. Okay. What do you think of that? Does that make you upset? How does that make you feel? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I don't know. Would it be better to have them be super nice, every single one of them in pristine condition, Okay. and then they go off to auction, they get auctioned off to some guy, or is it better for some dude to stumble upon this and distribute all these cars at a lower price <laughs> to guys that are going to turn them into projects and enjoy the project mm -hmm. of having them. Yeah, well, I mean, for the sake of just 
barrier to entry. Yeah, I like the latter option, so I could maybe buy one of those projects. Right. So was is it better for them to all to get auctioned off as shiny little baubles? Or is it nice for them to, you know, go into the hands and, and create a project for somebody? I think there's always going to be some of both of that situation. So what do you think is the right number of cars to own? Oh, okay. That's where we're going. I think it has to be, I guess, dependent on your resources, right? I mean, you hate to say, but it's, you know, income dependent. Because if you can have your climate-controlled hangar full of whatever for your collection. We're talking Jay Leno. Sure. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Then, yeah, you're not going to say, oh, no, you're limited to 10 cars, sir. Do you think that it's possible to own too many even at that level? Yes, I do. Because you'll be like, oh, I forgot about that one in that corner. I don't think Jay Leno forgets about anything that he has. Using, you think you can list example. off every single car he owns? Given enough time, yes. <laughs> I think he probably could. I mean, he, he definitely, when he, he knows all of his cars fairly well from what I can tell. Right. But for a regular guy, let's say a guy you're making 100 grand a year, how many cars can you legitimately own before it becomes a problem? Let's say you're single and you don't have a wife to beat down okay. on you. What is it? Six? I was going to say four. Yeah. Four cars is really all that anybody I needs. it's just for me. Yeah. Yeah. Four cars. After that, you can't drive them all. You can't hope to maintain them all. Right. You that's can't. the problem. So then you end up as the guy with that 400. That interest in some of them, too, I imagine. Right. right? Like, you're going to end up driving two that you really like and then well, i could see but you have one to haul your like boat and your toys so that's like your truck and then i okay i could yeah i could get away with more than that you could get away with more yeah, well as long I'm, as you don't end up as the guy with 400 vanigans hoarding vanigans it's a slippery slope it's it a, seems it's a slippery slope <laughs> all right before we have uh michelle on why don't you tell us a little bit about renline yes so you guys all know by now that they've partnered with us and are offering us a great discount to you our listeners and I actually just received more product from them. I love Renline because all of their products are extremely high quality and beautifully machined. They design performance parts not only for Porsche, but also for BMW, Mini, Audi, and others. They've been in business for the past 20 years and have developed over 6,000 products to meet the needs of enthusiasts. As I've mentioned before, though, what really sets these guys apart, they aren't just another you know, drop ship distributor and all their parts come from China. All their products really are designed and engineered right there in-house in Vermont. So do yourself a favor, head over to renline.com and use the code OVERCREST to get 5% off your next order, along with free shipping on orders over $250. All right, we'll be right back. Right. All right, we'll be right back with Michelle Gadding. Hi. Hey, Michelle. It's Chris from the Overcrest Podcast. How's it going? Hi. Uh, all good. And you? Oh, very good. I, I hope all is well with your holiday. Yeah, yeah. All good. All good. It's uh, <laughs> just a relaxed holiday, so all are you, fine. Are you home in Denmark? Yes, I am. I'm actually on the top of Denmark, so we're in a nice place. I, uh, what are you, I, so you were driving the Ferrari at Le Mans, but what are you driving back in Denmark? Do you even have a car, or what are you driving around in? <laughs> Yeah, well, I I do have a car, yes, but I'm driving. I'm just driving a Ford Focus, so it's uh, nothing really special, unfortunately. So, um, but that's okay. I can race in my race car on the racetrack, and then I can take it easy on the roads back home. So, do you even if you're taking it easy on the roads, do you kind of find yourself driving the line as you go around? Because back when I'm I'm driving like an on ramp to the freeway or something, I'm always kind of just I'm always hugging the inside line a little bit. Do you find yourself doing that at all? Oh. 
absolutely, for sure. <laughs> I mean, every time there's a roundabout or something, you never go around it, you go straight over it. <laughs> I mean, uh, so, so of course, in that way, I, I of course, do some crazy stuff, but I'm not, um, like, speeding and stuff is uh, not something I do at the normal main roads. Yeah, yeah, that's probably probably not a good idea in your position. Um, no. Nope. So exactly. what was the car culture like in Copenhagen when you were a young girl growing up in day-to-day life? What was it like there? Um, I mean, um, in Denmark, it's uh, it's quite special with cars because we the taxes in Denmark are 180% higher than anywhere else in the world. So the taxes on our cars are really expensive. Um, but even though that's the case, um, I always grew up having a lot of cars um, around me. Uh, my dad loved cars, of course, and he had a lot of um, crazy cars, fun cars, um, and now uh, it's a bit more relaxed cars because we cannot afford it anymore. But, I mean... Um, uh, in- what were some of the cars that, you, when you say crazy, fun cars, pick one that was your favorite? Um, we had um, we had a Volvo S60, which was um, tuned in Sweden. So it was like, it was a, like a family car, actually, but underneath the bonnet, it was not a family car. I, I cannot. I thought. I think it had 350 horsepower or something, which it was. It's 10, 12 years ago, so it was um, an unbelievable car. Which was I remember it being super fast. And then we had. Then my dad had an uh, Audi S4, which was his little baby. Yeah. Uh, but the car unfortunately got stolen. So, <laughs> but we in the past. I remember that we had some fun cars for sure. <laughs> Did you have a car yourself when you were a teenager? Your own car? Um, um, actually, I never had my own car. So I have been lucky enough that the cars I've had has been through sponsorships. And also the car I have now is through a sponsorship. So I never really had like my own car, which was like a small Fiat Punto shit car, uh, which drove like 100,000 kilometers or something like that. I never, I, <laughs> actually, I've been so lucky. I always had new cars. Sure. Because uh, of my sponsorship. So with the with the 180 percent tax, which I which I didn't know about, is that does that lead to people taking better care of their cars because it's such a financial investment? Are all the cars there just well kept? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's uh, you, you people t- definitely take care of their cars uh, in Denmark, and you can see on the different areas where people are living that they are earning more money than others. Like I'm living in the north north side near near the sea, and um, here it's, this is where the big houses are and stuff. Not because we're rich, rich because we're not, but it's a really nice place. And here you really see some of the crazy expensive cars and. Um, you never see really old used car. Of course, there are really old uh, used ugly cars in Denmark, but it's really rare. Um, and this is obviously because the the money that people are earning in Denmark are good money. But of course, we pay more for cars. But you can right. really see when people are earning a lot of money uh, that they, most of them have good cars. So as I was reading about you and looking at your website and a few other places, you're well known as being pretty stubborn and ambitious. When you were young, what was your inspiration as a young girl that helped you develop your determination? Um, yeah, when I was young, I was obviously in karting for many years. And uh, my inspiration was always uh, Michael Schumacher. Um, he was the one I looked up to and saw as a 
motivation person for me um, because of the things he did in F1 and the, because of his whole mentality regarding racing. He was very serious about everything he did before he got into the race car. He was very serious about his physical health and he did a lot of he did a lot of things to become a better race driver, which was not just being uh, driving in the car all the time, but a lot of things next to it. And um, so he was always my big inspiration and actually he still is and uh, when I was young I always wanted to be like Michael Schumacher and I always wanted to drive uh, Ferrari yeah that's that's a good role model to have as as <laughs> as a young girl for sure <clears throat> um, so what kind of what led to racing as as a younger obviously you got into karting did you get into karting to do racing or was it more for for fun or what was the deal um, well, with the with the karting part, it actually started when I was on a holiday uh, with my, my my parents and my sisters. We were on a holiday in the south of France, and there was a small racetrack next to our hotel, and I got to try go kart there. And um, back then, I was a gymnast and had no clue about racing. Um, and I was I was seven years old. I tried this go kart, um, which had um, I still remember it. It was a red go-kart with number one on it, and it had a Ferrari logo on it, and that was the card I wanted to drive. And since then, when I tried the go-kart for the first time, this was when I said to my parents, hey, I want to race. And then we came back home from the holiday, and I started to race just on the on a rental go-kart track every Sunday evening. And that's how uh, that's how it all started, actually. And so those, those go-karts are pretty slow, the rental carts, right? I mean, that's... Not that exciting. What was it like when you finally got into a real go kart? Did it was it surprising at how much faster they were? I mean, back then, uh, being seven years old, a rental go kart was already back then <laughs> quite suppose. quite fast for me uh, because yeah. um, I was I grew was like kind of fast. But when I was really young, I was always very very small and very tiny. Um, so for me, the go karts were quite fast. But I remember when I got my first first go kart to drive on an outdoor track. I remember that it was obviously a lot quicker and I just remember the first time I was on a real go-kart track outside, I kept spinning in the same corner um, and hitting the same rubber tire, which was in the middle of the corner. And I just, just, I just remember it because I kept breaking the same part on the go-kart because the kart was for me quite fast, but it wasn't actually. Um, but um I remember the step from definitely from a rental car to a real go-kart. It was quite a big step. But uh, when I look at those go-karts today, I can really see that the speed was really, really low. But <laughs> obviously back then everything was a lot bigger and faster. Yeah, well, when you're one meter tall, it's it's <laughs> every, yeah, exactly. everything seems a lot different. You know, you go back in your life and you look at things that you haven't seen since you were a kid and you remember them being so big. And then you see exactly. them again. You're like, oh, that's just a normal sized thing. <laughs> exactly. That's the, that's the thing. Um, so when did you know that you were good? When did that, when did that occur to you or your family or your coach? Wow, you're really good. Let's do this. Um, I think um, I was always traveling with my dad around Europe when I was racing. Uh, he was always with me, and I remember we did a race in in Belgium. Me and my or me and my dad was my coach. So um, and I just remembered that people came to him and said, hey, she's really, really good. You need to do something with her. She needs to, to go somewhere else to race. And um, Wait, Hold on a second. As, that, a, as a young person, what are they looking for? What makes you good as a young karting driver? What what are they seeing in you? What did they see that they, they needed? They, it was quite clear. They saw that um, they were, they came to my dad and asked me, is it a 
boy driving because they said I had bigger balls than anyone else <laughs> because I was I was doing the most unbelievable overtakings that nobody think was possible. So uh, they could easily see on my I, I've always been a very aggressive driver in driving style, and so they could see it on my driving style and then my overtakings that I had a talent for racing. And uh, it has the overtaking part has stick with me since. That I could just, uh, whatever I've been driving, it is, if it was karting or formula cars or race cars, I always did some crazy overtakings and I can still do it where people will be like, how is that possible? Has, so, it, has it ever gotten you in trouble at the same time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I had a lot of trouble. So also <laughs> some of the overtakings, they I uh, couldn't really finish them. So, of course, there have been accidents and crashes, and um, but it never scared me. I mean, I just tried again and then it, it, um, it happened. So... Yes, I got in a lot of tr- trouble, but it was ne- never an issue for me because, um, yeah, I always could take the fights afterwards in the pit lane if that was the case, and I, d- I did it with, with pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you go and how do you crash, and then how do you wipe that out of your mind and get back in a car the next week or the next day or the next hour and keep going and not think about the danger that you were in? Well, I think um, it's, a, it's a thing that you need to have if you're racing. I mean, if you get scared or have fear, it's not the right thing for you to do. If you start thinking about, oh, is this going to hurt or will this hurt, then it's not the right sport because, yes, I had accidents. And I had big accidents also in karting where I rolled over and had big crashes where I completely destroyed my go-kart and almost myself. And the first, first thing I thought about was, how is my helmet? Um, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to have to buy yeah. another one. <laughs> exactly, because our helmets are our uh, so-called identity. Because we get out the helmets painted in our own colors. Right. Um, so, I mean, I never had fear of crashing or accidents. And even though the card was completely destroyed, I would go back into it and try to drive, even though it was impossible. Um, so, I mean, I've just shaken it off always very fast. Um, but of course, when you're getting into race cars and you're driving with speeds of 300, you're thinking about more about uh, what happened, if uh, what will happen if I have an accident now. So I, I definitely, especially at Le Mans, I thought more about the risk of having an accident for sure. But it's not that I have fear, but I'm just thinking more about the consequences. Right, right. Because if you have fear, that means you can't commit. And it's actually more dangerous, I think, to have the yeah. fear. Exactly. So how did you get in from karting into Formula Ford? What was the transition there? Because once you get into Formula Ford, you're basically, you're going for it. That's You're trying to be a professional driver. What was that decision like? Well, it was the, the most natural step for me. It was to, uh, because I have always been very focused that I wanted to go in the Formula direction of cars uh, after karting. So um, we, I got the opportunity um, to, to race in Formula Ford in Denmark and, Sorry, um, it was racing in Denmark with Formula Ford was not really the best thing to do, but it was a natural step for me to to learn mechanical grip, which you learn a lot about in Formula Ford. And you get to learn how to drive with gears and clutch and so on. So it was a natural step for me. How old were you at uh, the time when you started doing that? I was um, 16. Okay. Yeah. 16 so it was before I had my driver license and stuff but it was um it was a natural step and I learned a lot from it um and yeah I, I'm super happy I, I choose that way uh, of going into Formula Ford. So after that you got into the FIA Young Drivers Program what is that? 
the the FIA um, driver uh, program is the the FIA is the International Federation of Motorsports, like FIFA and football, and um, they have academies for young driver talents. And I did a selection with thirty nine boys in on a on a track somewhere in Europe. I cannot remember where it was, and this selection was about we were. We could win like sort a sort of a spot in this FIA Young Drivers Academy, and um, they had to pick nine drivers, I think, from all over the world. And I was in the Europe one, which was the, obviously the biggest one, where we were thirty nine drivers. I was the only female, and I was the fastest of everybody, everybody there, and I won the spot. Uh, and then, did you take any uh, grief from uh, the other thirty nine boys? I mean, was there any consternation or? Any- did they give you a hard time? No, I gave them a hard time. It was it was uh, <laughs> the, the fun thing about it was that it was an track that nobody knew, and it was in cars that it was in a Lexus, I think, in cars that nobody had a clue about. And here, the the, the judges really got to see who who was the fastest, and um, I won the spot. And then it's an academy where we traveled around Europe and we did some different. Um, what do you call it? Um, assessments. Like we were away for a week and then we did physical training, mental training, driving trainings. And then in the end, they found a winner of um, an overall winner of all the academies who performed best, best over a year. So it's basically just a place where they're trying to make drivers better as persons and as drivers. And I'm sure the manufacturers are watching that stuff closely too, right? Yeah, absolutely, because it's a it's a FIA thing, and I mean, as soon as FIA has an eye on you, it's it's a good thing. Then then everybody knows that uh, that you're good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you went from karting to Formula Ford to the to the FIA t- program. Over that period of time, what was the biggest challenge in continuing to move up as you went on? Well, it was um, obviously it was to to find what was the, the natural step for me from Formula Ford. Where where did I have to go? Because I was so focused back then on going into Formula cars. That was my biggest aim. Um, but at one point, we had to realize that this is not going to work because we never had the budget ourselves to finance anything. So uh, we had to look at uh, other, other opportunities, and we started to talk about um, touring cars and and stuff. And it was oh. I was not really up for it because I was back then focused on being a Formula One driver. Um, but then I got invited to another academy, which again was with FIA and FIA Women in Motorsports, um, where I they had selected the 12 best girls from the whole world. And we did a test on a racetrack in Germany. And the one who won this test, got a free season in the Shiroko A-Cup, which was a support race of DTM. And I won this selection and got two seasons in Shiroko Cup in Germany uh, as a Volkswagen factory driver. So I didn't pay anything for it. And I raced insuring cars, which was kind of a new step for me because I came from Formula Ford. I went into a front-wheel driven car, which was quite a huge step. And I remember the first year in this car was such a mess because I just couldn't adapt to away the way a front wheel driven car has to had to be driven were you just frustrated uh, with it it was a Scirocco right yeah it was a Scirocco yeah and was it were it you was, just frustrated with the way that the front wheel drive car drove or what was the trouble adapting it was uh, it was just adapting because uh, 
driving a front wheel driven car with such an aggressive driving style like I had just didn't fit to the car. And um, it was a learning process for me because I came from Denmark. All of a sudden I raced on big racetracks like Hockenheim, Nürburgring and all of those huge racetracks, which are three times bigger than the tracks we have in Denmark and in a car which I had no clue in. So it was um, it was a very frustrating year. Um, but Volkswagen decided to give me a second chance and a second year. And as soon as I started the second season, I had four races with four podiums in a row. And all of a sudden, I just adapted to the to the driving style uh, that the car needed. That's awesome. Which was great. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you mentioned it a little bit, but was it was it difficult to lean? Because without huge financial backing and huge money, you're leaning only on your talent and your ambition. That must have been really hard. Yeah, um, I mean, it is a, it's quite a tough sport because um, so many young drivers have the talent and they know that they are good, but they will never get the chance because they don't have the, the financial backup. And uh, so you just, I mean, racing today is so much about um, having the right people behind you, supporting you and being at the right place at the right time. And it's, I mean, there are so many things with racing which are really horrible because you can have a contract with a team and you cannot actually trust the contract before you're sitting in a car racing. So there are so many things which um, which are tough. I, I had a year in 2015 where I didn't race for a whole season because we couldn't find the sponsors, we couldn't find the money. And that was the toughest, toughest year in my life, without doubt. It was... Um, yeah, because you just want you just want to drive. You just you just exactly. want to drive, and it must you must have just been crushed. I was I was heartbroken. It was my uh, because it's my passion. You know, this is, my racing is what I live for. I raced since I was seven. My whole life is about racing. My whole family uh, is around my racing. Uh, everything we do is, has something to do with racing. And all of a sudden, it was just gone. It was just taken away from me, and there was nothing I could do. And I was knocking on doors and begging for money, and you know. Uh, to get to race, which just didn't happen. And you are just at one point where you're so low mentally that you're like, should I, should I stop now? Is it the time to quit and give up? Because it, it was just a, a mental breakdown for a year. I was, uh, I had a huge depression. Um, but then everything turns around 180 degrees and then suddenly I'm back in the race car. And I remember getting back in the race car after a year of not racing. And I was back in the race car. I raced like I never did before. I was I was such a better driver because I just felt like I got a second chance. And not racing for a year should make you need uh, some time before getting back to it. But it was just I got into the car and it looked like I never stopped. So in hindsight, do you think it was a good thing for you? I think so. It was... Um, it was a wake-up call of realizing how much you actually love the sport and that you should never take it for granted Whatever, whenever you get a chance to race. Um, and then I just, um, yeah, I became a better driver in a year of not racing quite. <laughs> right, right. So what, over, the, over all the years leading up to Le Mans, what was the, do you remember a time when your gender became obvious in your racing experiences? Were you ever treated differently or um, with sponsors or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, we you will always be treated differently as a female race driver. So it's just something you have to live with and you have to get on with it because it will never change, I think, the gender question issue thing. Um, I I never felt like I, I got 
um, special rules because I was a female driver, so which which I shouldn't have, of course. And you wouldn't um, want them anyway. But, <laughs> no, exactly. So that's that's but that's what people often expect. They're like, oh, you get special rules because you're female. And you're like, no, I don't. I get the same rules like you. Um, but with the sponsor part, it was. I always got told the same thing, like, oh, you're a female. It should be so much easier for you to get the money from the sponsors. And it's not. Because if you go out to a big company and you say, hey, I'm a female race driver. I did this and this and this. Uh, they will be like, but you're a female driver in a men's world. That doesn't really fit. So that has often been the um, the mindset on being a female driver in a men's world is that, but I don't belong in a men's world. Um, so it's never been easier for me to be a female driver because we, uh, when I say we, I mean my family and I, we never played the the female card. We never said it's a girl. I have always wanted to be taken as a race driver, right, right, um, and not a female race driver, and have different benefits compared to others. What is it that What is it that they think that you can't do? What is it that they're afraid of? Do you think? I guess. The, the the mentality is that the female are not strong enough to compete in car racing, and um, often you see from from racing teams is that they are afraid that they will lose the female drivers because suddenly they get pregnant, or they want to be a mom, or they want to do other things in life. So, and that's actually often the case with racing teams is that it's too risky for them, right, to take in female drivers. But again, on the other hand, I think the mentality is slowly starting to change a bit. And one of the reasons for that is because of our Iron Dame, uh, Dames pr um, project. Yeah. So I wanted to get right into that. How did the Iron Dames team come together? Now, this let me preface this by telling people this is the Le Mans team, the, the first all-female Le Mans team. And you guys, you guys finished and everything. It's an incredible, incredible feat. So tell us a little bit about the Iron Dames. Well, the Iron Dames project actually started at the at the first race of this season, but the, the story is a little bit different because we as a team got to meet each other last year in a, on a racetrack in Italy. Um, we were invited by Kessel Racing, the team. We were invited to a test, uh, to attend a test. And um, here we got told basically that they just wanted to do a test because they might wanted to do a 12-hour race in Abu Dhabi in the in the end of last year. So we were those three girls, Manuela, Rahel and I were there. We were testing. We had two days of testing and um, we didn't know each other. I knew Rahel because I know her from racing. Obviously, uh, she's one of the females you have to know and she knew me. But uh, with Manuela, we, we didn't know anything about Manuela. So um, it was kind of new for us. We were there. We were there with a big Ferrari team. There was a lot of people there. Actually, we had no clue what was going on because nobody was really telling us anything except that we got a, we got a test in a Ferrari 488 GT3 for free. So, of course, you say yes to that. Yeah. Um, and I remember this test. It was quite funny because I came there and all the focus was actually on Rahel because she's a huge name in motorsports. Everybody knows her. Um, so actually, everybody was expecting something huge from her. And uh, they had no clue who I was because I'm coming from a small country and uh, I didn't race in, in Europe for many years. So nobody had a clue who I was. Um, so there was no expectations from me at all. And I just remember we did those two days of testing. And at the end of the second day, the, the team was like, okay, they have no doubt about who Michelle Gatting is now because they were just so impressed. Because um, it was it was quite a, 
quite a funny thing that there was no expectations and we ended up doing a very well test together and all of the three three girls and then at um, at the end of the second day the team said to us okay girls we want to uh, we want to invite you to a 12 hour race in Abu Dhabi in December and um and this is actually how it all started. And the whole project was actually started by Deborah Meyer, who is um, who is a female who raced Ferrari Challenge, who is a big uh, Ferrari enthusiast. Uh, she collects cars. She collects the most beautiful Ferraris she can, could not imagine. And, I mean, she has um, she's not missing anything, to say it that way. Right. And she wanted to start this female project. So she was actually the one saying to Kessel Racing, because she raced Ferrari Challenge with Kessel Racing, she said, okay, you have to collect some girls, and I want to test them in Italy. And this is how it all started. So the whole, um, let's say, brain behind behind this project is Deborah Meyer, who is, uh, who is just an enthusiast of uh, Ferrari and Ferrari collector and the most amazing woman you could ever imagine. <laughs> It sounds sounds if she's willing to start a project like this, it sounds like that's probably true. So tell us a little bit about um, the Ferrari that you guys ended up taking to Dubai. And then actually, before we get to that, when you did Dubai, did you know that you were eventually going to go to Le Mans when you were there? Did they tell you? No. Okay. What was it like to find out that you were going to go to Le Mans? I mean, um, we were in Abu Dhabi, and um, I must say there was a lot of pressure. All of the three girls put a lot of pressure on each other because actually we had no clue what was going on. So we were just there racing, and all of us wanted to be the fastest and perform. There was right. no doubt. So that there was a bit of um, the, there was a bit of tension between us uh, because nobody told us anything. They were talking a little bit about they wanted to start a female project and stuff. But I mean, we have been in the sport for so many years. We have heard this story over and over again about people wanted to start projects, which never happens. Right. So um, basically, we just did our job on the track. We did a great result in the end. We finished P2. Um, everybody was so impressed by us that they said, um, okay, we, we uh, you you will hear from us after this race. And this is actually how it all started. That first they said, okay, we are going to race in the European Le Mans series together with the lineup we had in Abu Dhabi. And then they started to talk about Le Mans. And um, I mean, you can never, honestly, it's a, it's a horrible sport regarding this topic because you can never trust anybody so when the team started to talk about Le Mans you're like yeah sure whatever <laughs> everybody wants to race Le Mans but you cannot believe anyone no one because it's uh, you need all the right people behind you financially um, but then they told us that they uh, they tried to get us an invitation from Le Mans and it was starting to get more and more serious about this Le Mans topic and um, then they told us that um that the Federation of Le Mans was um, figuring out whether they wanted to give us, because we got in with a wild card. Um, so we were waiting for, I think, two months to know if we got the wild card or not. And it was tense. It was really because there was so much talking about, yeah, they really like our project and we we think that we get this wild card, but we're not sure. And, you know, there were so many things going on because for me, um, Le Mans has always been the the goal. This is what I've been dreaming about, wanting to race, um, and then in a Ferrari. And um, then the first of March, at two o'clock, we we got the entry list that we were we were going to race Le Mans. 
<laughs> that must have been, I mean, that must have been goosebump central right there when you finally found out. It was, uh, it was really emotional. And it, it honestly, talking about it, it also makes me emotional because it was, I mean, getting to know at two o'clock that our car number 83 was on the list with, of course, with our names on, but with my name on, I was like, I can't believe it. I mean, and it was, everybody was crying. The team, we were calling each other and sending pictures to each other and everybody was crying. Everybody was so proud. It was such a huge moment. And I remember calling my mom saying, mom, I'm going to race the mall. And she was just, she was crying. And my dad was crying. My dad is not somebody <laughs> who cries. And it was just such a relief that it finally happened that I got the chance to be at Le Mans because what? of one lady who just had the passion to do it and wanted to give us that chance. And it was based, it's the culmination of everything you've done in your life, right? I mean, that's, you're finally, you finally reached a point where you can feel like you made it. Exactly. It, it was because, I mean, like I said to you, there's been ups and downs and it's a, it's a really a sport which has so much more to do about just driving and being a good driver. There's so many other things which need to fit together. And like I said to you, you need to be at the right place at the right time. And I got this chance testing with the team in Italy in last year in September. And I did this test and I just knew I had this chance. And if I, if I did something big there, it could change my life. And it just, I just performed like never before because I knew I had this one chance and it could open doors for me like never before. And yeah, it, it did open doors for me. I got to, I'm racing the European Le Mans series right now with a top Ferrari team. I got to race the 24 hours of Le Mans and it's all because I performed like they wanted to and if not better. Right. It's, life is all, all about being ready to seize the opportunities when they're given to you. Um, so exactly. what what car tell me about this car that you ended up taking to Le Mans? We are racing the Ferrari four eight eight. Um and it's uh, in Le Mans. It's a it's a GTE version, but because we are racing in the GTAM, so the AM class, the amateur class, so called it's not really an amateur class, but that's what they call it. It means that um the car has to be an older version compared to the GT Pro cars. So the GT Pro cars are the are the newly cars from from the year, so from 2019. Yep. And our GTAM cars has to be from 2016. But this means that the cars need to be downgraded with less downforce, different suspension. They need to be like in the year 2016. Um, that's the the car we needed at Le Mans. It needs to have less power than when we are racing in the ELMS then we need to have a normal GTE car, like the GT Pro cars at Le Mans. It's kind of complicated, and it, I don't understand why. Did it frustrate but, you a little um, bit when you're on track and you know <laughs> that you've been kind of handicapped a little bit when you're driving and somebody's just slowly pulling away from you on the Mulsanne straight, that you just know that yeah. there's a reason for it and it's not your fault? Yeah, well, it's um, <laughs> you kind of get used to it. Um, I mean, um, I think... Honestly, just getting the chance to race at Le Mans was, was such a big thing. And um, for sure, I could have changed a lot of things during the race yeah. so that the car was performing better because I was not 100% satisfied with, with uh, how the car was performing during the race. But uh, that's, uh, that's a different story. But, but I mean, you have to start out no matter what, doing your first year at Le Mans, starting with the GTAM class is absolutely fine. There's yeah, no need yeah. to. Uh, you basically drive a golf cart. It doesn't matter. <laughs> 
No, exactly. <laughs> Just getting to race that race is, is something big. And I mean, with the GT Pros, it's all the manufacturers, so it's all the factory teams. Right. And uh, our team is not a factory team, so it's, uh, it's it was the perfect way for us to start. So what is the lead up to the race like? Like when you get to France and the week up to the race, it's like a whirlwind, I hear, right? Yeah, it was really a whoa for us. Um, we did the test, which was a week before the race, and already there it was a lot of whoa for us because everything down there is so massive. And um, it was it's such an experience. And then getting to the race weekend, we arrived Saturday, which is one week before the race starts because we have this um, screw denearing, which we have to do on Sunday. We have to do so many things during the days. Um, so it was... Um, it was such a magical experience being at Le Mans and the way that uh, people welcomed us there, the fans and stuff, because there will always be people who don't like the project, but most of the people really love our project. We are very well respected in the pit lane by all the teams because we already did great results together. We, we finished second at the first round of the ELMS. So uh, we have won respect from all the teams uh, being a female lineup, actually, not being there because we are females, but we are there to perform and doing a good result. Um, but but the Le Mans week was amazing. Getting to experience the driver's parade was, ah, thank God I had my sunglasses on because I was so uh, emotional because of um, seeing so many people cheering for, for us. And um, I never wrote so many autographs in my whole life. Uh, and getting to, to to stay on the grid before the race starts at 3 o'clock, getting to see the fighter planes, uh, pilots coming down with the French flag. And, you know, there are so many things you ju- you saw on TV, and then suddenly you're out there being a driver, feeling the atmosphere of 250,000 people. That's just, wow. <laughs> so, so that's more pressure than you've ever had put on you before. We're, and, you know, I hear that you're cold as ice, but at Le Mans, Le Mans, there had to have been some nerves the first time you got in the car. Actually, since I was the um, I was the third driver getting in the car, I didn't get in the car before seven o'clock okay. in the evening. And so, um, I mean, um, getting into the car for the first time, God, I've been waiting for that my whole life, you know. Getting so, um, I was, um, of course, there was nerves, but um, in a good way. I was just super excited to get into into the car. I didn't want to get out again after two hours. Um, and it was, we were so focused or, um, just to go into the cars and perform, not to do mistakes, not to do anything stupid. That was, that was the goal. And I mean, I was so much in the zone during those 24 hours of not making mistakes because hey, you have to think about your team. You have two other drivers waiting to get into the car. You have a team of 45 people who work their asses off for months to prepare for this race. There's so many people behind the scenes that uh, nobody knows anything about. And you don't want to go out and be the one who fucks up. So, um, yes, there are nerves, but in a good way. And you just, I turned my nerves into just being more focused. So you started at 7 p.m. and you went for, so does everybody drive two hours? The three of you, is it two hour stints and then you swap every two? Or do you guys drive Um, different times? The the plan was actually that Rahel and I, we would do one triple stint during the night uh, because we are the one with the most experience. But um, this was not the case because um, the night was challenging. And I basically, I just, uh, I was struggling a bit with my knees. Um, So I said to the team, I'm not going to do three hours. Um, I I didn't want to risk anything. So, um, but, but, 
So it ended up that we all did uh, a bit more than two hours every time we were in the car. And then I finished the race with uh, just a stint of one hour. So so you were the one to finish then? You came across the line? Yeah. What was that feeling like? Well, it was um, it was um, very special finishing the 24 hours for sure. Um, because, um, yeah, everybody says it's special. I really wanted to start the race. That was my dream, to start the 24 hours of Le Mans. Uh, this was uh, this was not the case. I got to finish the race, um, and it was. I mean, the last lap, the team told me to, okay, you have to find Claudio, who is my teammate. You have to find him on the track so you can cross the finish line together. Um, so I was commun- communicating a lot with the team during the last lap, and um, then I found my teammate. Um, Claudio on the last lap and then we finished uh, the race together crossing the finish line together Um, and then we saw the whole team cheering at us over the fence and that was really emotional um, because our sister car the one who was in the car his name is Claudio he's the husband of Debra who is the reasons why we were racing at Le Mans so um, getting to cross the finish line together with Claudio, knowing that he's one of the reasons why I was here, was really, again, another emotional moment sitting in the car. And then two minutes after, I was like, mm, well, we finished 10th or 9th. And that was, um, I would never be happy just finishing in 10th position. So after bursting away my tears, I was like, okay, hey, you only finished 10th. So uh, there's nothing to cheer for because that's where I become a really, um, let's say, my mind changed a bit. I, I'm racing to win, you know. I'm not racing right. just to be there and to compete. But, of course, our goal was to finish the race, and we did, and we did it in a good position. But there's no doubt that if I'm coming back next year, we have to aim for a bit better result. There's sure. no doubt. <laughs> well, there's always, you know, always aspirational, always aim for the podium, right, no matter what. Exactly. So what was the, looking back after you finished and now that you've had time to think about it, what was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome from being at Le Mans? Um, for me, I never drove a night before properly. So of course, driving at the night was special. I, for, I, I became, driving during the night, I was always two seconds slower than when I, when there was daylight. And I felt like I drove the same, but obviously I'm not. Um, and I was, I was really frustrating driving in the night, seeing my lap times always being so, so much slower than in the day. Um, so for me, um, there was no doubt that I needed more experience driving during night um, because we could probably have won a bit more time during night. Um, but the most challenging part was definitely for me because I got in the car at 5 a.m. in the morning and that was, that was when the sun was really low getting up. That was really, really tough because um, that's the time where you are destroyed. You are tired. Um, the sun is starting to come up. It's super low. It's super strong. You cannot see. Your visor is not uh, helping at, it, at all. So, um, And that's the time where people crash and have accidents. It's uh, because that's the time where you're tired, you cannot see properly. So I was so focused during my stint from five till seven in the morning because I just, I just couldn't see properly, and that was a really tough two-hour stint, uh, just because of the sun, just because of the light. Right, right. So I talk to my girls a lot about 
perseverance. I always, my, my, I have two little daughters, and honestly, they, I, I wanted, they, they wanted to ask you a few questions, but they, they said, oh, they wanted to know what color your car was and all this other stuff. They were really, really interested. But um, one thing that I would, I want you to give to them and and many other women is, what have you learned about all of this about sticking with it and perseverance? Well, it's it's all about you know, um, it's for me. I have always been driven by my passion to my racing. You know, there is nothing I rather do than race. Uh, but but honestly, you you for sure you need to to know yourself what you want to do. But you also need the right people behind you to support you. And my parents have been a huge thing in this whole game because you know there have been times where I did not believe in myself. And they were the ones who believed in me. Um, so it's it's all about really, you have to be so determined that this is really what you want to do. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, if you're playing tennis, or because there will always be tough times. There will always be times where you want to give up and where you want to, you know, when I graduated from my high school, I didn't graduate properly together with my friends because I had to stay an extra year in school because of my racing. So I didn't get to graduate together with my best friends. I got to graduate with people I didn't know. Um, and all of those things because my racing came in the way. And there are so many times where I had to say no to normal stuff like normal people would do because I had to race. Um, so you really have to 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 know that, that, that that's the thing you want to do. Um, and there will, and that there will be tough times, but in the end, it will it will pay off. And I think I'm a pretty good example to that because there was actually there was one year where I was out, I was on the limit of giving up and not wanted to race anymore because it was just everything felt impossible. And now in 2019, I raced my first Le Mans, and hopefully we'll be back next year. So. It's a, it's a it's a lot about your own mindset, but also having the right support from the people behind you. For sure, it's uh, it's it's an incredible incredible achievement. Um, before I let you go, why don't you tell us a little bit about where people can find out more about you and Kessel Racing and the Iron Dames? Where or what, Owen? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where? I mean, where, like social media. It's uh, it's at Iron Dames, right? I think. Yeah. And uh, you're at Michelle Gadding, I believe. And yeah. uh, Kessel, I think, is at Kessel, I believe, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, which is K E S S E L. So make sure you guys go check out, um, check out Kessel and uh, everybody's social media. That would be great. And before um, I hang up, I have the same question that we ask every interviewee: What makes a car cool? Not just a race car, any car. What makes a car cool in your mind? Um, history. So um, obviously now racing with Ferrari, Ferrari has so much history. And since I was a little girl, I wanted to race Ferrari because of their history they have had in racing, but also in, in normal cars. So um, for me, what's really fascinating and what's cool about cars is the history of, uh, of the whole brand. Awesome. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for, for calling in and spending time with me today. And in addition, I can't thank you enough for being who you are that I think the, I think humanity in general needs people like you that, that show such perseverance and determination and, and, and achieve their goals to show people what's possible, you know, not, not only as a girl, but as a, just as a person. And, and I really appreciate that as well. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. All right. You take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. Yep. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. (laughs) 
All right. So what did you? Uh, you weren't here when I did that interview. What no, did you that was of, a solo interview. What I really did you think liked of that. What did that you think was of awesome. It was. It was really cool to hear her perspective. It's also very inspiring. It is truly inspiring, and I, I love the stories that um, where people come from, where it's hard, right? Right. Because it isn't like I said at the end of the interview. It's it inspires me to you know get off my ass and try a little harder, you know, and just and at whatever it is, forward. at whatever it is. It could be, it could be anything. So, uh, yeah, I think that's about all we have time for today. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, just be sure to support the podcast. We always say head over to patreon.com if you haven't checked us out there and be sure to leave us a review on iTunes as well. Yeah. Enter into that contest that we were talking about. Also, patreon.com slash overcrest i love all the the people that are signing up for it um support us support the show pay the rent keep the lights on and get some cool stuff in the interim (laughs) (laughs) exactly all right take care guys